The Evolve Network is now live at evolvenetwork.tv. Subscribe for meal plans, recipes, cooking shows, and our very own The Magic Pill and The Magic Plant, as well as access to my favorite documentaries. The Evolve Network is also home to our full library of podcasts, with new release podcasts airing first and in full on the channel. You can also watch selected vodcasts in a video format. Enjoy this highlight of our podcast and head over to evolvenetwork.tv for the full Evolve podcast experience. The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great-tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Dr. Scott Jensen is a lifelong Minnesotan who moved to Carver County 30 years ago to raise a family and practice medicine. He published his first book in 2015, Relationship Matters, The Foundation of Medical Care is Fracturing, which utilizes real-life patient stories to emphasize the critical value of patient-doctor relationships and the absolute need for patients to be encouraged to be their own best champion for their healthcare decisions and desires. In 2016, Dr. Scott Jensen received the prestigious annual statewide award, Minnesota Family Physician of the Year from the Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians. In November 2016, Jensen was elected to the Minnesota State Senate, receiving more votes than any other Republican state senator. In 2019, Senator Jensen chief-authored and presented seven unique bills on the Senate floor, including a groundbreaking pharmacy benefit manager bill representing an entirely new chapter of state statute, and all seven bills were passed by the Senate unanimously. In 2020, Senator Jensen was asked by the Senate Majority Leadership to be the chief author of the Insulin Safety Net Bill. After more than a year of gridlock, Senator Jensen brought the bill to the Senate floor after being chief author for 28 days. It passed unanimously. Subsequently, the bill passed unanimously from the conference committee and was signed into law by Governor Waltz less than a week later. To find out more about Senator and Dr. Scott Jensen, please visit his Facebook page at Senator Scott Jensen. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, brother? Real good. Thank you for having me. You must be a very busy man at the moment, and I really appreciate 
you giving us an hour of your time because you seem to be a man that's tackling the establishment head on. And for that, I want to thank you and I applaud your courage and your tenacity and your determination to bring a balanced point of view to the masses and hopefully to the establishment too. I would love to start off with why you, why now, and how long have you been vocal about these issues? It's a great question. I don't think that I would ever say that I would choose this path, but for whatever reason, it's the path I'm on. And so it seems to me that if not me, then who? It all started right around the 1st of April when I received an email from the Board of Medical Practice in Minnesota providing some advice or instruction or coaching on how to complete death certificates. And I've been doing this business for 35 years of taking care of patients and occasionally having to complete death certificates. So I was pretty surprised when it seemed like we were seeing the rules changed for COVID-19. There have been documents identifying clearly that in late March, the CDC in America did make a decision to modify the way death certificates were completed in regards to COVID-19 so that if COVID-19 was thought to be probable or assumed to be involved in the death, then it should be used as a cause of death. And if it was a contributing condition, it should be used as the cause of death as well. And typically, the death certificates in America are completed in such a fashion that if something is identified as a contributing condition, that's not placed in that sequence of events that led from, if you will, an underlying cause of death to immediate cause of death. If you have a contributing condition, that would be put in another area of the death certificate. Perhaps you have a heart attack and you develop congestive heart failure and then develop a pneumonia and then develop adult respiratory distress syndrome and you pass away. If a person happened to have a diagnosis of emphysema as well, in that specific situation, it may not have been in the sequence of events that brought about the death, but it would be a significant contributing condition. So we would put that in the part two of the death certificate and put it in as a contributing condition. We were told in early April that we should go ahead and use COVID-19 as a cause of death. That was remarkable. And so I protested. From there, I ended up doing some research and finding that if COVID-19 was used as a part of the discharge battery of diagnoses, that the reimbursement to the hospital, if it was a Medicare patient, would be routinely increased so that if you had a pneumonia that was due to just sort of garden variety pneumococcus or staphylococcus, the hospital might get $5,000. But if COVID-19 were listed, then the hospital would get $13,000. And if a ventilator was used during the hospitalization, then the hospital would get $39,000. And at that point in time, I started to get attacked from bureaucrats and from physicians, and it just kept going. I didn't really see that I had done anything incorrect other than just say, hey, wait a minute. If we're going to be doing this, we're going to be having a profound impact on the public trust. And if we're going to try to deal with a pandemic, I think one of the most important things that we have to focus on is preserving and building the public trust so that everybody will not feel forced to do such and such, but will want to do their part. And so I think we were in Minnesota rapidly seeing a loss of that public trust, and it seemed to go from there. We saw governors use their executive powers to create new laws without the legislative branch being involved. We went on to see 
if you will, private rights violated, health information distributed to places it shouldn't be. We saw nursing homes locked down. We saw active COVID-19 patients discharged from the hospital to the nursing home, basically creating a pipeline of active disease into people who are the most vulnerable. And I protested in this regard as well. So I think it was in June that it really hit me that I was walking around with a target on my back. And it was at the end of June that I was notified that the Board of Medical Practice was investigating my license. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. I want to go back a little bit to the hospitals and receiving payments for death. Because for anybody that's listening, how does that work? And why does that work? Why do the hospital get payments for a death? Explain the process and the understanding for me, because I need to get my head wrapped around this. The hospital doesn't get paid for death. The death is simply an adverse outcome. The hospital, whether a hospital discharges a patient to home or to a nursing home or pronounces a patient dead and to the morgue, the hospital will get paid based on the discharge summary and the other secondary diagnoses as well. But the death certificate isn't a part of the hospital's payment equation at all. It has to do generally with the discharge diagnosis. Now, if a person's pronounced dead in a hospital, when the discharge summary is done, generally the diagnosis on the discharge summary will usually be the same diagnosis that would be used on a death certificate. But the death certificate itself doesn't translate into any payment for the hospital. That's simply the discharge diagnosis and the subsidiary diagnoses as well. Perhaps the discharge diagnosis might be adult respiratory distress syndrome, but other diagnoses might be heart attack, COVID-19, respiratory illness, and emphysema. And the reason that the difference in payments, is it because of the equipment that has been used or the time that that patient has spent in the hospital? Explain to me how there can be differing levels of payments to a hospital. That's a great question. In our country, probably 75% of hospitals are paid through a prospective payment system for Medicare patients, patients generally over 65. And what that means is if I admit John Doe, a 75-year-old Medicare patient, to the hospital with pneumonia, the hospital will receive about $5,000 for the services it provides. That will not include the doctor's fees, but that hospital would get 5000 whether the patient was in for a day and a half or seven days. They get a bundled payment. So in this situation with COVID-19, Medicare system came out and said that they were going to put, if you will, an additional payment on top of standard payments. Because COVID-19 was new, there were new and additional requirements regarding using personal protective equipment, that it was going to be more difficult to determine when patients might be able to be discharged. There would potentially be more needs to do testing, testing before a patient was discharged. There might be, if you will, a two or three day lag time between when the test was done and when the results were received. And during that time, the hospital would likely be required or obligated to keep the patient in the hospital. All those kinds of unknowns were, I think, part of what drove Medicare to decide that COVID-19 was a special situation. So looking at that as an outsider, you wouldn't necessarily believe that the hospitals are at fault for 
doing what they're doing, they're just following procedure? Or is there something a little bit more nefarious going on? What's a good question? And it's a fair question you're asking. I think the way I might put it would be, have we, as a government program, Medicare, did they create a perverse incentive to code this way, not that way? When we're encouraged or allowed to depart from the normal, precise, specific train of events that happen, and that's basically how we're held accountable, when we're advised that we can go away from that, then it might seem like a natural thing. Well, you know, it could be this or it could be this. And I want my hospital to do well. And I can't say that it's not COVID-19. And we've certainly seen cases in the area and the symptoms fit. Even if I don't have a positive laboratory confirmation, I still think it's possible that the patient had COVID-19. And so that diagnosis by this doctor might be utilized. By another doctor, the doctor might say, no, I didn't do a test. I never thought to do a test. I'm not going to put COVID-19. And so what you have is a little bit of a scattergram, and that's problematic. We have that going on even now, because if you actually look at some of the criteria required to make a diagnosis of COVID-19, you can actually take epidemiologic data and subjective data without any laboratory confirmation and go ahead and make the diagnosis of COVID-19 and utilize the code number U07.1, and you'll get paid the increased amounts. One hospital might do it one way, another hospital might do it another way. But at the end of the day, if we're not going to all be doing it the same way, we have created a pretty messy intersection between dollars and healthcare. Not to be so blunt, but a hospital's businesses, How does a hospital system work for somebody that doesn't understand the system? And is there a system? Are they there to make money? Hospital administrators pride themselves on being profitable, to be sure. It's a business like any other. And a hospital administrator that comes in and perhaps takes over a hospital that's operating at a 1% profit margin and turns it to negative 4% five years in a row probably won't be hired back. So being profitable is important. But most hospitals in America are nonprofit. So they're trying to plow the dollars that they would make back into enhancing the health of the community, the services that the hospital might provide, and things like that. But nevertheless, hospital administrators and their team will generally be bonused or compensated in one fashion or another based on financial performance as a large measurement. And certainly there would be other factors that would come into play also. Oh, that brings us into a gray area or a messy area when dollars are involved in those sort of decisions. And do you think that with the COVID-19 response, with the incentives that were put into place, do you think it was human error or do you think it was planned in a way to incentivize more case numbers going up? I think it was both. And I know that people will not like it that I say that. I think there was human error. I think a lot of times physicians and hospital administrators are just trying to do their best. There is, and there was at the beginning of this, and there continues to be an incentive or a concern on the parts of some decision makers that perhaps the masses, the masses of citizens, aren't paying enough attention, aren't taking things seriously enough. And so it seems to me that invoking fear is potentially best done by 
having impressive numbers and utilizing sensational headlines to describe what's going on. I mean, a person could say something like this. Minnesota had five additional COVID-19 deaths yesterday. Or they could add those five COVID-19 deaths onto the total from the day before, and they could say, Minnesota breaks its record for COVID-19 deaths. Now, one headline will frighten. The other headline will make it easier for a person to put things in context. We're seeing a lot of sensationalistic reporting, and we're seeing a lot of fear-mongering. Which shouldn't go hand-in-hand with medicine. No, we've seen science literally get sacrificed at the altar of panic. A lot of folks forget what science is. Science is three things. It's observation, it's measurement, and it's hypothesizing. So if Newton sees an apple fall to the ground, he observed it. Maybe he decided he was going to measure how many apples fell down to the ground versus how many fell up to the sky. After he counted up, 10 out of 10 apples fell to the ground. He thought, hmm, I bet that what's going on is this. And he's created a hypothesis. And then it's his job to create an experiment to confirm his hypothesis. And then to get other thoughtful people to confirm his hypothesis by doing their own experiments. And when we arrive at a conclusion reached by multiple different parties in a randomized way, double-blinded studies, peer review, we arrive at what we would consider solid scientific conclusions. We've let that go with so many things, whether you're talking lockdowns, closing schools, grasping onto any kind of mask as being effective, forgetting the fact that the mask could also cause more touching and fondling of the nose, eyes, and mouth, or that a person could be breathing their own trapped bacteria and fungi. We've done this over and over again. And the common denominator seems to be fear. And people are angry. People are angry at other people that don't agree with them. And so we've lost the ability to have civil discourse. I don't know, Pete, if you agree with everything I say. And to me, I'm not too concerned about that. Because if you disagree, we can talk about it. And we can say, well, is there something we do agree on? And if we can find that common ground and build from there, we can probably come up with a relatively constructive plan. And we can both be on board. And if we're both on board, we're more likely to succeed. But that's not what's happening. Mm, Beautifully said, brother. I've got a couple of questions because it's something that keeps getting brought to my attention and others' attention. When this started and the outbreaks happened in New York, we heard that the front lines, these hospitals were overrun, yet other parts of the country or even any parts of the state, I've heard and seen evidence that the hospitals weren't busy. I've heard stories saying putting people into respirators has been beneficial. But on the other hand, I've heard that it wasn't the right course of procedure for people with COVID-19 as well. What happens when there's so many differing messages out there? How can people get to the truth of what this is? It's a great question. And I think there's really two parts to the question. And then there's an overarching question. So I'm going to start with the overarching question. People want to know what's going on. And we need to be more forthright and say, we don't know. This is uncharted territory. This is a situation that's very fluid. We've had too much arrogance. And in that arrogance, 
we see conspiracy theories spawned. So I think that we've done a bad job in terms of our bureaucrats and our academicians being honest. They should be saying more often, we're not sure. We're desperately trying to learn as fast as we can. Now let's dive into the two micro questions you asked. One was the ventilators. You said that you had heard that the ventilators were perhaps incorrectly used. At the time, we didn't know. We knew that we had someone there with respiratory distress. Traditionally, if we lose the ability to blow off carbon dioxide and to bring in oxygen, and we do this, and we do this, and we've used oxygen, and we've intubated, and we've suctioned, at some point in time, rather than allow a person to die, we oftentimes will use ventilators. What we found was that people were on ventilators in New York City, almost double the normal rate of fatalities on ventilators occurred. So instead of a 40% death rate with ventilator usage, in some hospitals, it was 80%. Well, that made us think very quickly about what's going on here. And there were some courageous New York physicians who came out and said, we got to stop using the ventilators because all we're really doing is jacking up the pressure to force air into the lungs. And that might be blowing out the little alveolar sacs and causing more problems than it's helping. And sure enough, what we've learned is that ventilators should be used very cautiously in a very circumspect fashion. And actually, high concentrations of low full oxygen would be better. And so we're doing more of that. So that's one thing we learned. And then the other question you were asking had to do with, were the hospitals being overrun, overwhelmed? Well, if you look at New York City collectively, and I have tried, I've called out and talked to hospital administrators. There was a group of us from Minnesota that wanted to go out and help. But quite frankly, they didn't need our help because we didn't have the right skill set. I don't do ventilator work these days any longer. So what they really needed in New York City was critical care intensivists. And so me as a family physician taking care of COVID-19 patients on an outpatient basis rather than in the hospital wouldn't have been as helpful for them. But the administrative people I talked with indeed said that some hospitals were virtually bursting with patients, but other hospitals had quite a bit of room. And the studies that I've seen that have tried to, if you will, count all the hospital beds and count all the patients have indicated that New York City did a wonderful job of managing their beds available and the patients that needed them. The fact of the matter was there were emergency hospitals set up. There were ships brought into bay that could have served some of these patients, and they were never utilized. So I think, did they get close in New York City? Yes. Did they get to a point where they were overwhelmed? I don't think I'm the person to speak to that. But I think on the whole, the initial efforts that we tried to do around the globe of depressing the peak and delaying the surge so that we could make certain that our hospitals and healthcare facilities weren't overwhelmed, I think that goal was accomplished. I think it was accomplished in the first month. We were able to generate more PPE. I remember telling people, we are going to have ventilators on pallets, unpacked, that will never be unpacked because we just went over the top with panic. So anyway, now we're at a much calmer place. We've learned a lot. We know that we have therapeutic interventions that could be helpful. There's a little bit of a struggle or a little bit of a, if you will, a division in medicine in the United States today regarding should we be doing more treatments 
at the front end of the disease because it seems in our country, we've been saying, you're either going to get better or you're going to get worse. So we'll wait and see which it is. If you get better, congratulations. If you get worse, when it's time to put you in the hospital, we'll do that. And we're having a lot of citizens in the United States rise up and say, no, that's not acceptable. I don't want to sit in this limbo. If I've got symptoms for two or three days, and I think they're maybe getting a little more significant, but I'm certainly not at the point where I have to go to the emergency room or the hospital, I'd like to try something. And that's why we've had such a quarrel or such a bickering session about drugs like hydroxychloroquine and dexamethasone and butesonide and zithromax and vitamin C and vitamin D and zinc. And we haven't had a very scientific discussion. We've had physicians absolutely bickering and warring with one another. And we have some physicians saying that other physicians should lose their license because that physician had the audacity to not agree with them. It's become rather silly. It almost reminds me a little bit of the debate we had last night here in our country. (laughs) I, I watched the debate. I have to say, this is where humanity has gotten to, the human species of 2020. I said to my wife, whoa, if that isn't an alarming call for all humans to look at two people bickering on stage, yeah, maybe we won't go there just at the moment. But it was frightening, to be honest with you. What I would like to talk to you about is, you mentioned hydroxychloroquine. So in Australia and New Zealand, they've basically banned it. They've made it illegal for doctors to prescribe it. They have taken out advertisements in the newspapers saying that, like the Victorian government, we will not be using it. And Queensland, another state, they will fine doctors for prescribing hydroxychloroquine. How can this happen? How can a drug be deemed so dangerous at a time when some doctors are saying it could be used as a preventative measure, or maybe prevention isn't the right word, even though some people use that word, but as a treatment, yet governments have all of a sudden shut down this drug or pharmaceutical after 60 years of being available on the market. I really hope you enjoyed the first half of this podcast. If you'd like to listen to the rest, please visit evolvenetwork.tv. That's evolvenetwork.tv. We'll see you there. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.